Hello and welcome back to Shockingly Wicked, a true crime podcast where we bring you true crime cases from the headlines to the hometowns. I'm Brianna. I'm Brittany. And we are your hosts for the evening. So No, we're not. <laughs> we're not? Okay. Never mind. <laughs> Bye, guys. <laughs> we are all quite tired today. And when I say we are all, it's because there's more than just the two of us today. We are going to be joined by my friend CJ. Professionally, she goes by Kia, but I've always known her as CJ, so... That's probably what you're going to see me refer to her as. Introduce yourself and what you do. Okay, so my name is CJ, but I go by the stage name Kia. I am a content creator, model, actress, overall social media personality. (laughs) And that's pretty much just what I do. Didn't tell me she was famous. (laughs) Listen, I... I she does stuff, <laughs> but she does so much stuff. Didn't tell me this. <laughs> the thing is, she does. You also didn't tell me your sister was famous. Well, okay, but that's. <laughs> I don't want to like go around bragging, you know. Like that's that's weird. <laughs> but today's episode, it's a little bit of a tough one, because I was friends with CJ. I remember this day specifically, and trying to like talk her through it and. It, it was difficult, but yeah, this one just hits a little bit closer to home, but I wanted to do my part in getting the story about Joseph out there. It's not that he hasn't been acknowledged for what he did, but because he wasn't one of the police officers who died in the process of this, I think the conversation was mostly focused on them, so... I figured I would give CJ a chance to, you know, share about her brother, and so more people can can learn about him. So don't start crying. Oh, I might. I mean, I maybe during the I'll interview. Be like, I don't know. I'll be like, I don't know how to deal with this. <laughs> I'll, I'll do my best not to cry. I can't guarantee anything though. So uh, it's not that I don't have sympathy, guys. I'm just the worst person. <laughs> Yeah, it's, no, I get it, because it's, it's uncomfortable when you're not sure how to comfort somebody, like, you want to, but you're and just, you're like... And you're not here, so yeah. I can't hug you. Yeah, exactly. Like... You're, like, they're there <laughs> over the video, like, <laughs> patting the, the webcam. <laughs> they're there. <laughs> they're there. Yeah, I'll, I'll do my best not to cry. Um, I mean, considering I don't have emotions, I think that should be fine. <laughs> I'm kidding. So this will be like our episode with Melissa about superbike murders, where we intersperse pieces of the interview throughout. However, if you are a patron, you will get a full video and audio of our interview with CJ on there. So don't miss it. Join us on Patreon. You won't regret it. I guess we can go ahead and get started. Okay, let me preface this by saying... I am going to talk about the perpetrators in this instance, but I don't want it to seem like I'm focusing mainly on them. The majority of this episode, we're going to focus on the victims, but I do, I do want to say that I am going to give some background on them as well. Mm -hmm. But first we're going to talk about the victims. So first we have officer Igor Soldo. He was born to Pero and I think it's Searly Soldo on August 26, 1982, in Mostar, Federation of Bosnia and Herzegovina, in Bosnia, so in Europe. Okay. He had two siblings. Yeah, I don't know where where it is, okay? That's that's all Bosnia I know. Bosnia is in India, right? Bosnia? No. Bosnia is its own country? Yeah. Huh. It's, Shit. well, right. it's, Google calls it a developing country. I don't know what that's supposed to mean, but it's kind of like, um... I don't know if you have a general idea, but it's like next to Croatia. So it's like Eastern Europe. Europe. Yeah. So like right near Hungary and Croatia and and yeah, all that. Y'all, I promise I'm smart. This podcast makes it seem like (laughs) I'm not, but I really am. Listen, geography is not my strong suit. I I had to pull it up on Google so that I didn't mess up. (laughs) I just knew it wasn't in India. He had two siblings, an older brother named Robert and a sister named Vidrana. The family moved to the U.S. in 1995 when Igor was 13, because I guess at the time it was a war-torn country. I don't know if it still is, but that would kind of make sense as to why it was considered developing, because it's like coming out of that. You're about to say coming out of the ground. 
yes, coming out of the ground. <laughs> no, it's just, it's coming out of that like economic whatever. I can't think of the word. It doesn't matter. So they moved to Lincoln, Nebraska, of all places. What? I don't think that's the randomest place. I don't know. I, <laughs> it really is, though. I was like, why there of all places? I know. I would never go to Nebraska. <laughs> Well, because it's like, it's one of those things where I feel like most, at least to my knowledge, a lot of immigrants will go to like the big cities first, like New York or California. Uh, California's not a, not a city. It's a, it's a state, but whatever. Neither is New York. New York is a, is a state. Yeah. There's New York city. city. Yeah, I know, but I could have been it could have been New York City or New York. So either way, Ray, I just like to humble you sometimes. I, you're lucky you're not here. I'd smack you. No, I would. But yeah, uh, they moved to Lincoln, Nebraska, and he went to the Uni- University of Nebraska in Lincoln, where he got a bachelor's degree in criminal justice in 2004. Okay, he Dusty, as, I see you. Yeah, I, I can relate. Actually, my bachelor's was actually in psychology, but my master's was in criminal justice. Anyway, he worked as a part-time psychologist. Uh, I'd need to like get certified, I think, but probably. But you could. You wouldn't have to go back to school, or no? I mean, psychologists are constantly renewing certifications and stuff, so I would I would be in school perpetually, and that's not something that I want to do with my life. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. He worked as a part-time corrections officer for about three years in Lincoln, and that's where he met his future wife, Andrea, who was also a fellow corrections officer. They were married on August 13th, 2009, August 13th, my birthday, and the pair had one son together. I believe it was July 7th, 2013. He had plans to retire when he was 40, so like an early retirement. They would move to California because they loved the ocean and just they they it was in an article and I felt that was important to to talk they about because the ocean. they loved the ocean, which is valid. That's if you're gonna go anywhere. Although the Pacific Ocean is apparently cold as shit. Yeah, <laughs> I, you that's I, why like nobody swim swims in it. You have to wear a swimsuit. Not a swimsuit, a surf suit. A wetsuit. That's what I mean. I went to the beach once in California, but I was trying to avoid getting a photosensitive reaction, so I didn't actually go to the water. So that's from everything I've heard, though it's it's freezing. So if you're gonna go that, anywhere, yeah, go I to only the know Gulf. that because when my aunt was living in San Diego, she said like consistently it was fucking ice cold. Sounds about right. Like, okay. Yeah, so if you're gonna go anywhere, go to like the East Coast or to the Gulf of Mexico, because apparently the Gulf of Mexico is really nice too. But that's just my opinion. So he was described as a devoted family man, loved to read, travel, and play basketball. He was a great storyteller with a memory for details. He was loyal. He apparently had an impressive memory when it came to like statutes and case law, but not so much with other things. And here's a quote from a friend of his who met him in the police academy. Quote, if you asked Igor where he put his car keys, he would have no idea. Unquote. It's like, that's me. Me. <laughs> I have to hang them up at the thing next to the door. Otherwise, I'm like, I don't know where they are. Sorry. So he actually had attempted to become a member of the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department twice. So the first time he drove all the way from Lincoln for the interview, but he was turned away because he ended up showing up like five minutes late. <laughs> So I was like, that's like the worst because you drove all that way just to be told, no, you can't interview. Like, come on. Oh, they didn't even interview him? No. Damn. (laughs) Because he was five minutes late. I mean, I get it from like a professional standpoint because they could have like any excuse as to why they're late. Yeah, but I guess for me, it's just like if he explained like, hey, I'm driving from Lincoln, Nebraska, like I'm I'm gonna be there. Yeah, but, but I don't know. That's, yeah, I get it. I get it, both sides. So he went through the process a second time, and he ended up joining the department on April 9th, 2006. So he was part of the patrol division and also worked in the problem-solving unit, and he became a firearms instructor in 2008. Yeah, I don't know why it's called the problem-solving unit. Why do they have that as the unit name? I don't know. I mean... so funny to me for no reason. I I, I wondered the same thing, because I'm just like... Isn't that entirely what police work is? Is problem solving? Problem solving? That's what a detective is. Am I wrong? Yeah. Yeah. So 
No. And he was 31 at the time of his death. And so we have Officer Alan Ronnie Beck. He was born to Ronnie and Ruth Beck on October 14th, 1972 in Green River, Wyoming. In 1991, he served a mission in Brazil for two years because he was a Christian. Uh, I believe they said it was a part of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I don't really know much about that like sect of Christianity, so I can't speak to, to much about that. He got married to his wife, Nicole Hastings, on August 9th, 1996 in Davis, Utah, and they had three children together. I'm not going to say their names. It was in some of the articles, so they're out there. I just want to respect their privacy. In 1998, Alan graduated from the University of Wyoming with dual bachelor's degrees, so he was working. He was doing a whole lot in administration of justice and international studies economics. I don't know really how... I guess administration of justice makes sense for a police career, but I don't know how international studies economics does. But while he was in college, he worked on construction sites until he heard about the job in Las Vegas with the police department. So the couple moved to Las Vegas where he joined the department on August 21st, 2001, and he also worked in the patrol division. He became a field training officer in 2006, then an academy training instructor in 2007. He was described as being a, quote, tough and tenacious, unquote, instructor, a good person who is, quote, always willing to lend a hand, unquote. He was funny, deeply spiritual, fiercely loyal, a devoted and attentive father and husband. Somebody even called him a renaissance man. I don't remember who said that, but basically it's because he had so many different hobbies. (laughs) I have an aunt who tells me the same thing. She calls me a renaissance woman because I'm doing so many things. I'm like, no, I just have ADHD. (laughs) So... His hobbies included carpentry, architecture, cooking, storytelling, musicals, sword making, teaching, and Iron Man. Sword and I'm assuming, <laughs> I'm assuming Iron Man is supposed to be like the the like comic book character, and not like the Iron Man like um, marathons or whatever they are like triathlons. But it didn't specify. So I'm gonna assume it's the, probably the triathlon. <laughs> you never know. Sometimes people are just really really passionate about a certain superhero. <laughs> In 2014, he actually returned to the patrol division while he worked on becoming a sergeant. So at the time of his death, he had actually already begun the process and he had passed the written exam and the career management review, live assessment center, and he was about to undergo some written portion of that before all of this happened. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Overall, he'd been with the department just shy of 14 years. So it said 13 years and 10 months. So that's a long time. But he was 41 at the time of his death. And then finally, we have Joseph Wilcox, who is CJ's brother. Joseph Robert Wilcox was born on April 21st, 1983 in Las Vegas. He was the second oldest son of Deborah Wilcox. So she was a single mother who worked as a housekeeper. And he had an older brother named Jack, an older sister named Angel, and then younger sister CJ. Tell us about Joseph. What was he like? Okay, Joseph. See, I get asked these questions, like, in the beginning, I got asked these questions a lot. And when it was back then, I could easily answer them. But who he was and who he would have been, I guess, feel like two different things now. But um, overall, Joseph was just a very kind and caring person. And he was your typical older brother pissed me off more than anything else in this world. (laughs) Um, We had our, we had our little spats. Uh, We didn't always get along. I can't, I can't sit here online and say we always got along, but he, he was very much into trying to get me out into the world because I was very much afraid of the world and I was very much timid. And he was very encouraging and adventurous, spontaneous, um, he just ver- cared very much for family and he absolutely loved video games. Oh my goodness, he loved video games. That's how he met his best friend, Stacy, And we still talk to her till this day, but he got me into video games. He got me into Marvel, DC. Um, I'm pretty much a nerd because of him. And he was just an overall great guy, I think. He worked multiple jobs, but he was actually looking to become a police officer. His mom didn't want him to because she was warning him like the job is dangerous and all that 
He never actually did end up applying, but it kind of speaks to his behavior with how things kind of unfolded and why he jumped in when he did. So he was also 31 at the time of his death. Okay, so this is where we're going to go into some of the background on the perpetrators. And the main reason why I'm doing this is just because I want to highlight the way that, I guess, political rhetoric can turn people slowly into extremists. Not all the time, but it's like there's a fine line between thought and action. And sometimes people will cross over that line, like these two, for example, because there are some things that they believed in that, like, I'm like, yeah, hell yeah. But other things, I'm just like, oh, no. <laughs> so we're going to go through. Their names are Jared and Amanda Miller. And I remember when this came out, I was like, so, that's going to, yeah, that's my sister's name. So I'm like, that's going <laughs> to suck for her. <laughs> no, Dada. So that's why she goes by Amanda C. Miller, I think. But it also helps her just stand out in general. So yeah, anyway, true. so Gerard, he was... Uh, arrested multiple times in Washington State and in Indiana starting in 2001. So in 2007, he pled guilty to a felony criminal recklessness charge, possession of marijuana and paraphernalia, and he was sentenced to... I think that's a, a stupid charge. I mean, I agree with that part, but I think the, the criminal recklessness charge. was something else, um, but it didn't like specify what it was. Yeah. So he was actually sentenced to a diversion program rather than jail time. So drug diversion programs are kind of an alternative to it's like the rehabilitative side. So I definitely advocate for diversion programs because it keeps people out of the justice system. Basically, they get help that they need if they're an addict. And in theory, it helps more my than mom it was in the first time she went to prison my mom did that but then she went mm -hmm. back so yeah and and that's the thing it's like in theory it helps but i think it helps more if they continue having help after they get out of the program because the program is only like a certain amount of time and that's fair i it, think a lot of my mom's problem was like mental illness so <laughs> i mean that that definitely plays a part in it too like, I, I think that overlaps a lot more than people realize. Yeah. In 2009, he was arrested and charged with battery, but he was later acquitted. They found him not guilty in court. I don't know details about that, so it doesn't really matter. In 2011, like, he was sentenced. What? Battery, what is battery? Battery is like when you hit somebody. Yeah. Battery, I guess. is. I don't know who it was against, so I'm not going to say it was like domestic violence, but it's in that like realm, like assault type of mm -hmm. thing, because usually it's assault and battery. So it's like somewhere in that. Yeah. In that umbrella. In 2011, he was sentenced to two years of probation and drug counseling after pleading guilty to three felony drug charges. So he'd had some run ins with the law. I mean, arguably some of those charges were bullshit because like especially marijuana like it's not hurting anybody and don't you come into our dms saying actually i don't care you don't care yeah. <laughs> okay so battery um the crime of battery is the intentional touching of another in an angry manner or the intentional use of force or violence against another i.e grabbing someone's arm pushing or punching a person or striking a victim with an object are all crimes of battery okay yeah so assault essentially it's probably just depends on like where you are and what it's labeled. Mm -hmm. So he met Amanda Woodruff in 2011 and the pair were married on September 22nd, 2012. She had never actually had a criminal record before the shootings. So I don't know if that means anything. It could just mean that she was very good at not being caught. Who knows? They enjoyed dressing up as supervillains, particularly Joker and Harley Quinn. And they would apparently walk around town dressed like that. Why? <laughs> And um, I hate that. I hate that so much. Did they dress up as Bonnie and Clyde? I don't know. I just they specifically mentioned Harley and Joker because there were pictures of them in that outfit. And let me be clear. I love Batman. I think that that universe is very rich in, in character lore. But if you idolize Joker and Harley's relationship, you have yeah, some issues. Because that's just it's straight up abuse. <laughs> Like, they're not couple goals. Oh, God. They looked creepy. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so the pair, they spouted heavy anti-government rhetoric and held particular vehemence for the federal government and, at the time, President Barack Obama. And, like, being anti-government is not a bad thing. No. Nah. But when, they t when you take it as far as these two did, yeah, it's a bad thing. So 
Gerard also talked often about conspiracy theories, so he was definitely... Alright. Yeah, he was definitely on that side of things. I see where this is going. I think I have in my notes that a lot of this stuff sounded very, like, QAnon-y, like, before QAnon was a thing, so... It's, it's kind of in that realm. But he posted rantings and video, like posts and videos on his uh, Facebook and YouTube accounts. And I have some quotes here. And like, I'm only going to read like, like a small snippet. Already what? picture. I feel like I can already picture it's like a rant this long on Facebook. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, it's probably about exactly what you would imagine. We can hope for peace. We must, however, prepare for war. We face an enemy that is not only well-funded, but who believe they fight for freedom and justice. Those of us who know the truth and dare speak it know that the enemy we face are indeed our brothers. To stop this oppression, I fear, can only be accomplished with bloodshed. No. (laughs) Uh, But he's not the only person to have that sort of mentality. I've heard so many people, especially in the area where I live, that's more of a rural community, they rail against what that's more libertarian any sort of rules yeah and like i'm i don't care about like what political leaning you are like if you're a libertarian like i'm fine with that it's just they like took that and then took it way too far to the point of being like extremist let me see there's there's another quote here which sounds more like the QAnon stuff but mm-hmm. it's quote i do not wish to be here when the financial collapse hits I can't even describe the horrors that would follow such a disaster. Think Katrina was bad? This will be a thousand times worse. They will do whatever it takes to restore order. This means executions in the streets, concentration camps, and starving children on the streets. Pray you die early. Like, bro. You're not... You're describing the Holocaust. I think we're past Yeah. Plus, like, anybody who thinks that, like, that is happening in the United States... Like, you know how many people would riot before we got to that point? Exactly. But also just the fact that, like, we are here in the United States are not as oppressed as other places. Like, there are places where there are actually concentration camps, like uh, the Uyghurs in, I believe it's China, and them being held in these camps and things like that. Like, there are places where these things are actually happening. It's not happening here. I mean, I guess, arguably... Arguably, the border where they're holding the migrants is, I guess, a concentration camp in a sense. But like, they're not being forced to work. It's not a con. It's not that extreme, I guess, if you want to compare it. Yeah. So that's the thing. I'm just like, it was fear mongering before it was as popular as it is today. Yeah. <laughs> Essentially, he also shared his hatred for law enforcement and police officers. There weren't as many stat- posts like that on Amanda's social media things, but she had posted on Facebook in uh, 2011, quote, To the people in the world, you're lucky I can't kill you now, but remember one day, oh. one day I will get you because one day all hell will break loose and I'll be standing in the middle of it with a shotgun in one hand and a pistol in the other, unquote. She was manifesting so. that shit. Honestly. So Kelly Fielder, who described herself as Amanda's best friend and whom the couple was actually staying with at the time, portrayed Gerard as the dominant person in the relationship. She was basically trying to say that he controlled Amanda into doing what happened. But, I mean, even if that is the case, she still did it. So, Yeah, yeah, because Kelly also said that Amanda apparently was not happy about his anti-government rhetoric, but then it's like, you see that status, I'm like, that was, like, when they first met, like, 2011, so you can't necessarily blame him for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she said that he had boasted about killing police officers and putting swastikas on their bodies, so keep that in oh. mind for, for later. Okay. So, in January 2014, they moved from Lafayette, Indiana to Las Vegas, uh, Gerard started working as a costume street performer in March, and Amanda started working at Hobby Lobby. How does and she go from work- from that to like House of God? That's the thing. I'm just like that's a Christian establishment, ma'am. It's it's always the people who are at like the lowest rung 
who get to this point, I, it feels like, always the ones who think they are above others, but while working as a costume street performer. <laughs> like, not, no, no, no dig at you if you're a costume street performer. That's pretty dope, but. <laughs> he was playing Thor, though. So, like, if you look up a picture of this guy, you're, and he, him, like, I can't imagine him as Thor. Like, anyway, uh, it is what it is. So, they had had. Imagine him as Joker. <laughs> they had had interactions with police prior to their attack in June, but there were, like, in those interactions, it was mainly just, like, them giving statements for other people who were being investigated. However, there was one instance in February where Gerard made a threat on a phone call to the Indiana DMV about shooting anyone who showed up to arrest him for having a suspended driver's license. So, I don't know, that seems kind of like a, a valid threat. <laughs> Oh so. my god. I don't think they arrest, like, I don't think they come to your house and arrest you. I think they just have you drive. They just come in, they take yeah. you to jail and pull you over. Honestly. They have so, better things to do. The assistant sheriff, Kevin McMahill, yeah, Kevin McMahill, he said, quote, in going back and conducting interviews with those officers, we've determined that there was nothing that stood out that would have indicated to us that the suspects in this case were anti-police or had intended any harm to our police officers, unquote. Okay, you didn't check Facebook. Clearly. That's fine. <laughs> Just admit that. So friends of theirs claimed that the couple idolized Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold. And if you don't know who they are, that's the people who committed the Columbine massacre. Uh, and that they oh. wanted to follow in their footsteps. Okay. Well. There were also neighbors of theirs who mentioned the couple had talked about committing a mass shooting. So one of their neighbors, wow. Brandon Moore. I know. So one of their neighbors, Brandon Moore, said, quote, they were handing out white power propaganda and were talking about doing the next Columbine, unquote. And then Kelly Fielder. How did that go to I'm confused on how all of that went to white power. Where well, did they get the white power from? Remember, there was the swastikas thing that was wow. mentioned earlier. It, they kind of go into that a little bit later, but not a whole lot. Yeah, I don't know. And then Kelly. Yeah, but they. I just. Mm -hmm. I was just. It's kind of. It thrown me off because it's like <laughs> nothing's been race motivated so thus far. Yeah, thus far the only thing that was really mentioned was that he hated Barack Obama, but like plenty of people didn't like Barack Obama. And then well, also he also said he hated the government. So yeah, and then like and then like the putting swastikas on people's dead bodies so i mean the, like the nazis uh, yeah, yeah. race purity was kind of their thing so yeah okay I see so kelly fielder also said um quote they said they were going to go to an underground world where they needed protection i could have called the cops right then i thought he was talking outside of his neck unquote so basically a bunch of people heard them saying that they wanted to do these things and didn't report it because they thought they were joking so i mean i get Okay, I mean, if it was me, I would have reported it, but I can get where people are, like, conflicted about reporting that because you don't think somebody's going to do it and you don't want to waste the police time by calling them out there when they're really just not, or they have a mental illness. Yeah, but even if the person has a mental illness, I think it's important, maybe not for the police to get involved, but at least, like, for them to Somebody involved. get help. And the, I think having the community people aware of it i guess yeah, can help fair. i don't know that's that's just my thought um i know that at least here in lynchburg that the police officers are trained in um crisis intervention so they try to focus more on helping the people who have mental illness rather than like taking them to jail and trying to do they, they try to actively de-escalate situations and so they're actually trained in that here can't say that's the same for everywhere else though they're not here yeah. So in April of 2014, they participated in the Bundy standoff in Bunkerville, Nevada for a few days. And if you don't know what that is, basically the Bureau of Land Management attempted to round up cattle that belonged to Cliven Bundy, who refused to vacate public land. Basically, he was just letting his cattle kind of roam on land he didn't <laughs> own. <laughs> uh, and so, oh my God. yeah, basically the the federal government was taking the cows off of their land the like public land and they got mad about it that's that's essentially what that's it was my cow! but then uh 
like they were there for a few days, but then Bundy's son said that they told they were told to leave by a militia member because of quote their radical beliefs unquote, and because Gerard was a convicted felon in possession of a firearm. So if you're a convicted felon and you have a firearm, you're more than likely go to jail. Yeah. So that those are the two reasons why they were asked to leave. Okay, so on May 2nd, 2014, so about a month before everything happened, he posted on Facebook, quote, There is no greater cause to die for than liberty. To die for that cause is easy. To live for it is another matter. Mm. I will willingly die for I liberty. I could think of some. <laughs> yeah. Like, they just they just keep going with this. It's like they're, like, spiraling. And that that's the thing, though, is that I don't know if I would technically count it as spiraling, because the, these sorts of statuses were kind of common for them over the last like the years before that but yeah but their behavior outside the statuses are like kind yeah. of make me think they're, they might be spiraling almost i mean i don't Maybe... think spiraling takes that long well that's the thing is i can't really say because there isn't a whole lot of information out there about them which is fine because i don't necessarily want to focus on their potential motives because what they did was still awful regardless of what their motives were but it's just like these things like there was evidence out there that they were potentially going to do something like this and nobody said anything i guess that's that's Mm -hmm. kind of the main thing i want to highlight like especially them talking to actual neighbors about wanting to commit a mass shooting i don't know to me it's like no that's not something you joke about like no but at the same time you have to think well if you're from that neighbor's standpoint if they do call and then nothing happens and then they find out they called are they going to be targeted i mean probably and like i get it but i don't know i guess i'm just like i would very much rather be overcautious in that sense but i guess that's that's just me personally i know other people wouldn't feel that way So the day before the attack on June 7th, 2014, he posted, quote, the dawn of a new day. May all of our coming sacrifices be worth it, unquote. And so essentially what their plan was originally was to ambush officers at a Las Vegas Walmart and take out as many as they possibly could. But we're going to talk about what actually happened. And we'll get right to that after a quick word about our sponsors. Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 because I wanted to see what the hype was all about and it didn't really taste super healthy. It kind of has a mild tropical taste that I actually look forward to taking every morning. With one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole foods, source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day off right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. All the things. In 2020, AG purchased carbon credits that support projects protecting old growth rainforests. So you're investing in an all-in-one nutritional insurance. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day, and that's it. No need for a million different little pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com emerging. Again, that's athleticgreens.com emerging to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. So June 8th, 2014, they left their apartment around 4.30 in the morning and walked the four miles to uh, the shopping area on Nellis Boulevard and Stewart Avenue. So Gerard entered a CeCe's Pizza restaurant where officers Beck and Soldo were having lunch on their lunch break. And so basically Gerard went in, he kind of like surveyed the scene, and I think he saw the two officers there. And so he left and then... Shortly afterward, like right before 1130, I think it said it was like 1122 in the morning, according to the security footage, Gerard re-entered with his wife and walked past the officers before they kind of like circled back around. Gerard pulled out a handgun and shot Igor in the back of the head. And then Alan attempted to return fire, but Amanda shot him multiple times in the throat, head and chest until he was down. And then they continued to shoot both officers when they were both down on the floor like oh my god 
it was it was overkill. So after that, they draped the yellow Gadsden flag over top of one of their bodies. And if you don't know what the Gadsden flag is, it's the one that has um, the snake on, sitting on it with don't the tread don't on tread on me. Mm-hmm. And so they draped one of those flags over it and they put pinned a swastika over Alan's body. And then they attached a note to Igor's that read, quote, this is the beginning of the revolution, unquote. So it's theorized that the swastika was more a statement about the police officers being fascists and Nazis and stuff and not necessarily their like alignment with the Nazis but the whole thing earlier of talking about swastikas um, I, I don't know it it could go either way but um, yeah that's fair so neighbors did also say that the couple often spouted white supremacist racist views I didn't see any specific examples but the neighbors said that so they then gathered up the officers handguns and uh, the spare ammo that they had before going to the Walmart across the street where is the pizza the pizza place people well people were there but I'm guessing that once they started shooting people ran to hide which I totally get I absolutely would too because like I mean I would too I was just wondering what they were I, that's the thing is that there wasn't a whole lot of information about like people who were in the CCs when it happened, but there, I did see a couple quotes from a few people who were in there and then who are also in the Walmart who like were talking about like what happened, like what they heard and then like where they went and kind of stuff like that. So people were there, but obviously nobody intervened at that point. So when they entered the Walmart, Gerard fired a shot into the air and said, quote, get out. This is a revolution. The police are on their way, unquote. And so this is where Joseph comes in. So Joseph was there at the Walmart. He was returning a modem with his friend Jeremy Tanner, and he was near the checkout area when the two arrived. And this is a quote from Jeremy Tanner, quote, it happened so quickly. I heard the gunfire and realized it was serious. And when I turned back, he was already going around the corner, unquote. So Joseph tried to intervene. He had a concealed carry permit. And so he pulled out his nine millimeter Glock and he began approaching Jared, but he didn't realize that Amanda was there or armed. So he kind of like walked past her and she shot him. I'm pretty sure it was just like the one shot. So she shot him in the chest and that killed him. 911 calls were coming in by that point, and so two teams of Metro SWAT officers arrived at the Walmart. One entered through the front of the building, and then the other came in through the back. The first officer on scene had attempted to track the couple through a parallel aisle as they were going through the Walmart, but he was fired upon by Amanda, and then so he fell back and waited for reinforcements. In the meantime, Gerard smashed open an ammunition case with a baseball bat to steal more ammo cartridges. So two officers went to monitor the CCTV footage in one of, I guess it's like a security footage room. I don't know what you would call it in the back, but basically they would- The security. Yeah. Yeah. So they would relay information about where the two were located to the police like through communications about like watching where they were on the that's security smart. footage. Yeah. That's smart. Like, that I don't know why people don't Big do brain. that more often. Like when there's these mass shooting incidences, well I guess at schools they might not have security cameras, but like at malls for example, like having They do, but go, it's probably not like at the schools it's probably not like in a room. At least my high school didn't have like a room yeah. just And I don't know about malls. I would imagine a mall does because they usually have security guards that kind of go around and secure the mall but i don't know that's that's just my thought i don't know if they actually do or not so basically police officers engaged the two in a firefight that lasted about 15 minutes apparently the couple fired about 36 shots and amanda was wounded in that firefight so they headed to the back of the store where they attempted to barricade themselves from the gunfire using just whatever was there and in the CCTV footage of their last moments, it looked like the two of them were discussing like some sort of suicide pact or whatever, or like shooting each other so that they couldn't get arrested. And so it also looked like Amanda shot at like in his direction, but none of them hit him because he was fatally shot in the chest by an officer. Initially, police thought that she had shot him and that's how he died. But when they like examined the bullet that went into him and it actually matched one of the police officers instead. Mm, yeah. 
And then Amanda turned the gun on herself and shot herself in the head. And she was critically wounded, but she was actually still breathing for a while. So they took her to the University Medical Center of Southern Nevada, where she died later. So overall, the experience in Walmart lasted about half an hour. Officers recovered, I think it was like five different guns, 200 rounds of ammunition, knives, and survival items from the couple's backpacks. Apparently, they had like anticipated just kind of hunkering down in the Walmart and shooting as many police officers as they could because they had packed like food and water and they were wearing adult diapers in the anticipation of a long standoff. Stop. Like, my guys, you are not professionals here. You shit yourself? Apparently. (laughs) So when they later searched the Miller's apartment, they found plans uh, that the couple had made to, quote, take over a courthouse and execute public officials, unquote. Dog, why so, are you bringing the public officials in there? You're well, kill because the freaking secretary? Because they're part of the government, apparently, and they're part of this big overlord machine. But yeah, mm-hmm. so that kind of makes sense when it comes to, like, their political ideology, them hating the government and whatnot, and I guess shooting the police officers, too. But I don't know why they thought going to a Walmart... And, like, waiting there to shoot police officers made any sense, but whatever. We asked CJ what she remembers about this day, and so I'm going to let her tell it from her perspective. Do you remember, like, when you first found out about, like, what was happening? Like, how did you first hear that something was going on? And what was your reaction to that? Okay, so when I first found out everything was going on, first of all, I was knocked out. I was like, the whole sleeping situation within my house was like kind of crazy. My mom and I were sleeping on a futon at the time and it was just a whole thing, but I was passed out and my mom literally ripped the blankets off me and kind of not shook me, but like tried to like tap me awake and like, your brother's been in a shootout, we need to go. And I was just really confused because I'm thinking like, you know, I'm thinking I'm dreaming, like, what do you mean he's been in a shootout? I don't understand, like, it it didn't make sense to me. So when I finally started to get more details on the situation, I can't say that I was scared or worried, which was weird. Um, I was more, like, curious and wondering where he was. It was a long day of my entire family piling into one car. We drove down to Walmart, parked at... I think it was a pawn shop because it was right across the street from that store. And we saw fire trucks on top of fire trucks, ambulances, police cars on top of police cars. And we had no idea what was going on. We kept asking everybody what was going on. We kept asking, you know, have you seen this person? You know, trying to figure out where is he? Is he okay? You know, what's going on? It took till about 2 a.m. for the coroner to call us. And let us know that he didn't make it out. And they said they would have called sooner because, specifically because, they heard his phone going off constantly throughout the day because I was trying to call him. My mom was trying to call him. My sister, my brother, my aunt, my uncle, everybody was blowing up his phone. Everyone just kept texting him, Joseph, where are you at? Joseph, what's going on? We thought he might have been at the police station giving a statement. We thought he might be at the hospital. And when everything kind of set in, I know I feel I was filled with this like rage. I ended up punching the couch. My mom didn't quite know what to do. I don't think she knew how to react. And I really didn't know how to react because to me, he was still coming home. Like it didn't make any sense to me. Like, what are you saying? Joseph's gone. Like I, I didn't understand that. And afterwards I couldn't listen to music I couldn't enjoy anything for a good two to three weeks, almost close to a month afterwards, because everything just felt wrong. And it felt like everything was just wrong. Like, why is this world going on? And mine just completely stopped. There was so much going on at the time. And on top of that, I was the one pushed to the forefront when it came to talking to newscasters and and just media in general, and just talking overall to public figures about the situation, because my mom was falling apart. And of course she had every right to, and I was doing my best to like keep myself composed enough to let everyone know who he was and what he did. But that day in my head, it feels like it was 
a hundred years ago and at the same time, it feels like it was just yesterday. And that kind of screws up my brain a little bit because it's been almost 10 years now and it all still feels really surreal. And I'm still trying to process what happened. I'm, I'm currently in therapy trying to process exactly what happened and why that day occurred. I remember that day specifically because I remember you messaging me and I know you were messaging other people because you were you were worried because you couldn't contact Joseph and I I was worried for you especially because there wasn't really a whole lot I could do from where I was because you were in Vegas I was here and the fact that it took so long for them to call you guys like I, I, I understand they needed to like identify him but at the same time not knowing for over 12 hours that must have been tough on you guys i think not knowing for 12 hours really drove us insane because the entire time we were thinking okay he's at the hospital he's at the police station giving a statement and we kept asking everyone and my mom kept saying that she knew in her gut something was wrong i knew something was wrong but i also didn't necessarily want to trust my gut but at the very least, I appreciate law enforcement and everybody involved with that incident profusely because of what they did for him and what they did for him specifically. Mm-hmm. However, I really do wish that they could have just told us in that moment because it would have saved us 12 hours of going insane and calling people and us annoying other departments. Like, you know, have you seen this guy? Have, you know, have you heard from him? And them all saying, well, we don't have any record of him reaching out to us. And that was the most frustrating of all because at least one or two people knew in that very moment what was going on. And like you said, I get it. They had to identify the body. You know, they had to do what they had to do. But going insane, looking for someone for 12 hours, knowing full well that they're probably not coming home because no one knows of their whereabouts and you haven't heard from them in 12 hours, he would have texted us by then. He would have called something. And when I think about that, I do have a lot of animosity towards the situation because at the very least, even if not telling the rest of us, you could have told my mom. You could have told the mother of the child that her son was killed. So I think... I have a lot of animosity towards that and I've tried to like bottle that up in some ways because I'm trying not to be mad at the people who did sort of help in the aftermath, but it's, it's kind of hard. And I think that's completely understandable. Um, Brittany, you probably feel something similar uh, with what happened with your case. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, people are doing their jobs, but at the same time, it's, it's making it more difficult for you and, I think it's okay to feel some sort of animosity because like it's your life and it makes it more difficult for you to take the steps that you need to in order to, I guess, recover, I guess is is the word for it. And it's normal. Like it's normal to have mixed feelings when something like this happens. So I don't want you to feel bad about that by any means. No, and it's definitely normal to be angry at, the first people you can be angry at, which is usually law enforcement or whoever's working the case. I knew I, during my case, I, those were the people that I was so angry at. So, I mean, I definitely get where you're coming from. So while I was researching, I found the Facebook page that your brother, I think, and your family made as a memorial page for him on Facebook. And I saw some videos and things like that. And in one of the videos, Jack was talking about some messages that you guys got from family members of the shooters. And would you feel comfortable talking about it and like letting us know what was said and generally like how you felt about that interaction? I don't mind talking about that at all. Yeah, it was really weird because it was, I can't remember specifically if it was a few months or a year after the incident happened, but the woman's dad reached out to me. And he specifically said that she was brainwashed. Uh, He didn't understand why she did what she did. It was just a lot of trying to specifically, I guess, for me, make up excuses 
and I get it. You're a parent. You, you, that was your, that was your child. You know, you were upset by the situation in a different way. However, I don't think it was a very good idea to reach out to the victim's family of, and when I think about it today, I understand he may have had some guilt, residual guilt himself because of what his daughter did, but that wasn't, that wasn't my problem. I was still reeling and dealing with the death of my own brother. So whereas I understand it, I also don't think that he should have done it. He was sweet in his message, but at the time I just didn't want to hear any of it. I had showed the message to my mom I had basically showed the message to my entire family. Um, my mom wasn't too happy about it either, and I can't really blame her because we were angry regardless of whether or not she did what she did afterwards, and regardless of whether or not she was not here, neither was Joseph. So for him to reach out and do something like that, it just drove us all up the wall. And when I think about it now, like I said, I'm. I'm understanding of where he was trying to come from, but even today, the message and thinking back on the message, I'm still angry about it because I don't want to hear any excuses. I don't want to hear how great your daughter was before this mess. I don't want to hear any of that because my brother is still dead because of what your daughter did. You lost something, but at the age of 18, I lost one of the most important people in my life because of whatever was going on with your daughter and her boyfriend. I, I don't know, I don't care at this point. I just remember being angry and being happy that she was gone, but also not happy because it didn't bring him back. And part of me wanted to reply to him and send him a message regarding details like that, but it was just like, what's the point? It, it doesn't really matter. The message that I send you is not going to make me feel better. None of this is making me feel better and I don't even remember if I deleted it, if I kept it. I don't remember what I did with the message, but I remember going back from time to time and rereading it and reading over it and wondering what prompted you to send this beside your own guilt. And like I said, within the message, it was just a bunch of, well, he brainwashed her. She was such a, she was such a great person. Um, I don't know why she would have done this. I'm so sorry. I know you're going through a lot. You probably don't want to hear from me. And just though you probably don't want to hear from me should have been a given to not send the message in the first place. So, yeah. And like you said, I can kind of understand why he wanted to reach out to you, but I guess the making excuses, I like, I get it. You, it's hard to reconcile an image that you have in your mind of somebody as they were one way with something that horrible that they did. But I guess, to me at least, reaching out to somebody who's still very fresh in their mourning over something, I maybe not the best idea. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Do you think maybe that was his way of trying to, I don't know, maybe like share grief with you because he did lose his daughter? Not that his message makes it okay, but maybe it was his way of saying, you lost somebody, I lost somebody. Maybe like... Kind of the same, but not really. That makes sense. I don't know if that makes sense. It makes sense in my head. No, it's perfectly okay. Um, I see what you're trying to say, and it does make sense. Uh, when I think about it logically, it does make sense to that extent. But even with my logic, it was just like, I am fully aware that you lost your daughter to someone who might have brainwashed her. I don't know. However, it was, yeah. it was her actions that caused me to lose someone who wasn't involved in any of that and he's still not here today, you know? So I, yeah. I, I was essentially just trying to be a good person. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So the aftermath, a trauma intervention group actually set up a donation rally at two local donut shops to raise funds for Joseph's cremation, where they raised more than $10,000 in three hours, which is a lot nope. of money. That is a lot of money. That's surprising, especially in three hours. But I guess that says a lot about the community there that they came together to do that. There was a memorial service for Joseph held at Palm Mortuary Memorial Park in Henderson, Nevada on June 22nd, 2014. He received a Medal of Valor from Councilman Bob Coffin. 
and a memorial tree was planted for him and the officers in Walnut Park, which is right beside the Northeast Area Command Building for the LV MPD. I think that's where the two officers like were stationed, like at that at that particular building. But don't quote me on that. So the plaque for Joseph is engraved with, quote, dedicated to the hero who walked into the unknown and stood strong for others, unquote. To my knowledge, Igor was also cremated. It, it said that. I'm not 100% sure. Alan Beck was buried in Afton Cemetery up in Afton, Wyoming. The city of Las Vegas is actually building uh, two new parks in memorial for the officers. The Alan Beck Memorial Park officially opened in the beginning of 2020 on January 31st. And then the Igor Soldo Memorial Park is in the works currently. So it's not it's not finished, but it's something that they're going to be doing. And then a scholarship fund was also established in memory of the officers that grant scholarships to either college or vocation school bound students of police and corrections officers in the Las Vegas Police Department. So even though a lot of bad things happened in that short amount of time, a lot of good things came out of it as well. And I think that's usually what I look at after. Like, that's why I'd like to talk about the aftermath, because a community that is able to take such a big tragedy like this and then make something good out of it, I think that says a lot about them as people. And I know they definitely rallied around CJ and her family, especially with helping for the cremation funds and things like that. And so I'll let her kind of explain some other things that have happened since, especially like how she's doing, how her family is doing, because I know it was such a big loss for them because it's one of those things where like somebody leaves the house and then you don't, you expect them to come home at the end of the day. And then when they don't, it's just such a shock because you know, you don't have a chance to say goodbye. You know, it's, I yeah. can't imagine going through something like that. Cause it's one thing to like know and be able to like, know somebody's going to die like because of an illness or something and be able to say goodbye and have time to come to terms with that grief. And then another to have them ripped away from you in such a horrific way like this. So can you tell us what you miss most about Joseph? I know that you said that you obviously had your sibling spats like every sibling does, but I do know that you were also very close because you had a lot of those like nerdy topics in common and he was that person that you shared it with. So can you just, what what are, what are some of the things that you miss most about him? Oh, this is a hard one. <laughs> um, just like you said, he was the one who introduced me to a lot of nerdy things um, between Marvel, DC, um, we played a lot of Unreal Tournament. Shout out to Stacy. <laughs> um, beyond that, I think I miss just the feelings I got when I was with him. I, I miss feeling free. I miss having that safety and support within an older sibling. He was always trying to encourage me to express myself and sprout my wings, if you will. He was always trying to encourage me to travel, to do something new. I mean... One of, the, one of my favorite memories with him is probably I had to go on a school trip and I was homeschooled at the time. And he was the adult that signed to come with me because he likes to do crazy shit like that. <laughs> and I was terrified of roller coasters at the time, like terrified, I would not go near one. He pushed me for an hour to get on one roller coaster. And that was his mistake because after that, we got on the roller coaster six or seven more times because I wanted to. <laughs> but that's the kind of person he was. And I think that's what I miss most about him is that he could push me to do things that I wouldn't normally do, that I was too uncomfortable with, I was too scared to do. But Joseph encouraged me to get out of my own zone, get out of my own head and I really miss that because it would have been so much easier having that around beyond the age of 18. Like, you know, I also just really miss the night driving with him because he used to take me on a lot of uh, night drives, especially on the freeway when he needed to like check something on the car. Um, it was always crazy too. He was like, Joseph, like the, the, the car lights are kind of blurry. He's like, get some glasses then because there's an issue. <laughs> 
he was always making like smart cracks, always just like, like when my mom or I would say that we had a headache or like, oh, my head is killing me. Joseph would just be like, well, your face is killing me. And it was just, <laughs> it's just like, you, you, you know what? That was rude, but I'm going to let it slide. <laughs> but I just, I kind of miss, I miss his sense of humor. I miss his laugh. Uh, I miss his hugs because he always used to like wrap around me and then put his chin on my head and then rub his chin into my head. And it drove me insane until all this happened. And then you just miss it. So you said it's almost a decade um, since this has happened. What is life like for you and your family now? Um, Like what I know it's obviously not the same as it would be if he were still here, but overall, are you guys doing okay? I think, like, I know that you mentioned you're in therapy, and obviously there's going to be residual stuff with a trauma like that, but overall, is your family doing all right with how things are going? The shortest answer there is no. Um, Ten years later, my mom is still waiting for him to walk through the door. I did not deal with the trauma and the grief at the time when everything happened, so... For the last couple of years, it has been slowly coming to the surface for me. I've always had death anxiety specifically, but it has gotten a hundred times worse. My family is just, we're kind of stuck in time, if that makes sense. Is there anything that we could do, like us or our listeners could do, that could help support you guys? That is a very good question um, that I'm not even sure I have the actual answer to. I think in all honesty, like when everything first started, my mom used to say that when she'd walk into a grocery store, there were certain people that would run up to her and offer her support. And then then there was others that would literally look at her and quickly turn away and then walk the other way. I still get nervous to bring up him and his story around other people because it's like people don't really know how to react. And I completely understand that. And it's like, I don't want you to know how to react to this situation because I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy. But I think just if you have good memories of him, share them. Like, I understand it's hard to talk about these things. And I get that it's a it's a nasty topic. But I think more than anything... My mom would say that she doesn't want people looking at her like, oh, that's the one that lost her son. Like, she doesn't want that. She just wants to be able to live. And she wants to hear the memories people have about him. She wants to hear things about him. She wants to. That's how I think she keeps his memory alive. I was always looking for other support groups of siblings that lost their siblings. I never quite found one, (laughs) but I think it would help me at some point if I could talk to someone else who lost their sibling. Overall, I think just the support from the community when everything happened and just even now is more than enough. I think I have to say that it shouldn't have taken me this long to process the grief that I'm still going through from almost 10 years ago. So I guess my message in this is just kind of don't push it away and don't push it down because it'll come back and it'll come back with a vengeance. And it's not fun. It's harmful and it's scary. And I'm still trying to get through this large bundle of grief from 10 years ago that I that I feel like I should have dealt with by now. Like grief is a grief is a system. It's a it's a whole process. You go through most the waves, you go through you know, mixed emotions consistently. Some days it hits you harder than most day, than other days. But I think I just have to be honest and say, when it happens, please don't put it off. Like, deal with it right then and there or do your best to work through it, whatever you got to do, because it can really affect you, not just mentally and emotionally, but physically. And when it affects all three that's that's the horror of it. <laughs> well, thank you so much for allowing us to interview you. I know that it's a tough subject to talk about, but the more we can talk about Joseph and get his memory to stay alive and more people who know about him, I think I think it's important cuz he did a really brave thing. So, 
I would like him to get a little bit more acknowledgement. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I appreciate you. Hey, yeah, that's that is that is what happened. Do you have any thoughts? It's very wild. It's very wild from start yeah. to finish. Also, the adult diapers thought really good to me. <laughs> yeah, like I they think were was... willing to die with shit in their diapers. <laughs> I don't know if they planned to do that much, but they were at least planning to pee themselves repeatedly. <laughs> so that's it's disgusting. I just I don't. I guess I don't understand the mindset of extremists because, and that's probably a good thing to not understand it because that means that I would not do it myself, but it says a lot, I guess that domestic terrorism especially is on the rise in the United States. Like that's actually a concern for people (laughs) like thing, not, not just situations like this, but just like various mass shootings. A lot could be said, but I'm not as educated on the subject as I would like to be. So I'm not going to say uh, a whole lot, but I think the important thing to remember is like, obviously you're allowed to have your beliefs and your opinions, especially your political ones. But when you start to cross the line into actions like this, where you take the lives of somebody else, just because you don't agree with them or don't like them, you lose all credibility in my eyes anyway. So thanks for listening. <laughs> like I said at the beginning, the whole interview with CJ, because we asked a whole lot more questions than are actually in the episode. The whole interview is on our Patreon. So go ahead and go check it out. I think any tier you sign up for, you get access to the interviews, but don't quote me on that. It's all, all the information is on Patreon. So you can find us on social media. We are on Instagram at Shockingly Wicked Podcast. We are on Twitter at Wicked Podcast One. We are on TikTok at Shockingly Wicked. We are on Facebook and YouTube at Shockingly Wicked Podcast. We have our website, which is shockinglywicked.com or shockinglywickedpodcast.com. And we also have Patreon, which is Shockingly Wicked Podcast. That link, as well as all the other social media links, are on our website up in the top right-hand corner as well as various other links to where you can listen to our podcast. But if you're listening to this now, you're already found us. So you might not need that. (laughs) (laughs) If you have case suggestions, you can use our contact form on our website, or you can send those to shockingly wicked podcast at gmail.com. So as a reminder, you will not hear an episode next week because I'm going on a trip, but the two weeks after that, we will have a two part episode Um, that we are very excited about because we are going to be interviewing an author about a book that's coming out about the Shenandoah murders. So get ready for that. The book is really good. I finished it the other day and I was like, what? (laughs) So so, uh, we'll be interviewing her and we'll be talking about the book and the case that surrounds it. So you don't want to miss it. Those are going to be our last two episodes of the season. And then we'll be taking a break for most of the summer. We will come back sometime around August, especially as we get closer to our true crime podcast festival that we will be at in Dallas. So we'll be doing like a live panel and I think a live show as well while we're down there. So we'll, we'll keep you guys posted on social media, but thank you guys so much for listening again. And we will see you in two weeks. Bye. Bye. Oh, Jesus. <laughs>